0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Tiso Blackstar Group, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live, and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Tiso Blackstar Group or its affiliates. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht and you're listening to episode 14, The Spring's House of Horrors. I'd intended to do an unsolved case this week, but I felt that I needed to do more work on that research, so I'm doing a solved case instead. I've had quite a few requests for this case from listeners, including Marco Gurman and Leandre van der I think it's quite apt to cover this case now, as we're in our 16 days of activism against the abuse of women and children. You've already heard my usual warning about triggering content, but I think that this particular case warrants a further warning. The details of this case include the severe abuse and torture of children, as well as the sexual assault of a minor. If you feel like this might be too difficult for you to listen to or may trigger you in some way, please give this episode a miss. If you're a survivor of childhood abuse and feel that you need assistance in working through that, please remember that there's a 24-hour number in our show notes and on our website that you can call for trauma counselling. This case is possibly one of the worst cases of child abuse and neglect that has ever come to light in South Africa. When the horrific details were exposed, it became international news. The trial relating to this case was quite recent, so there was a significant amount of resources online to work from. I also relied heavily on a book recently released by one of the survivors, called Heis van Grijewels. The book is only available in Afrikaans at the moment, and I will tell you that it's the first Afrikaans book I've ever read. I do hope it will be translated into English at some stage, though, because I really think it deserves a wider audience. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to bring this survivor's story to you in English, so that her story can be more widely shared. I'll put a link to purchase the book in the show notes. The level of Afrikaans in the book is conversational, so even if it's not your first language, you'll manage. I only had to look up two words. None of the names of the perpetrators or victims have been released in order to protect the survivors who are still minors. This case was not just disturbing because of the level of abuse and neglect, but also because it went on for so long. And despite the perpetrators being really good at hiding their secrets, there were actually quite a few opportunities for it to be stopped long before it was. I think that at the end of this episode, you may look at other families a bit differently too, because it's also a very good example of how a situation can look completely normal on the outside, when behind closed doors, the most shocking transgressions of the ultimate position of trust were taking place on a daily basis. Let's get into The Springs House of Horrors. Investigators and the social worker who initially removed four of the five children from their parents' care today painted a grim picture of the so-called house of horrors. Social worker Jolene Fouchier spoke of inappropriate clothing that she found spread out through the dusty house, while a forensic collector showed us virtual reality images of the entire house with images of cupboards in which the children allegedly were often blocked, sex toys, vibrators, and pepper sprays. On the 20th of May, 2014, the telephone rang in a Springs police station. The caller identified herself as Mrs. Fenter. She explained to the police officer that she was concerned for the welfare of her neighbor's young son. She provided them with the details of an incident that occurred the previous night. Her neighbor's son had scaled their wall and sought refuge in their home. He had seemed terrified, and later that night... He had been retrieved by his father, who had slapped the child several times before threatening to kill him. Later that day, 17 policemen and three social workers descend on the house next door to Mrs. Fenter. It's a large double-story house in a busy street in Springs. It looks like every other house on the street from the outside, except the police and social workers are met by a guard at the gate the man radios someone inside the house to inform them that they have visitors. The police have a search warrant. They don't need to wait, but they do. And eventually a stick-thin blonde woman lets them in. Four children would be removed from the house that day, three toddlers under five years old and a teenage girl of 16. The boy, whose age would eventually be determined to be 11 years old, is missing. Police fear the worst. The first contact with this family would be the watershed for an avalanche of horror that stunned the world, but the story really began long before that in 1996 when two teenagers met for the first time. Records would later show that the stick-thin bottle blonde, who eventually opened the door for police, met her husband when she was 16. She had lost her father when she was 11 years old, and her mother had remarried and, for all intents and purposes, abandoned her children. The girl went to live with her older sister and continued to attend school until she met a handsome 17-year-old boy. From all accounts, this meeting changed her life. She left school, and soon the young pair were engaged and living with the boy's parents on the East Rand of Gauteng, South Africa. In the book, the woman is referred to as Krai, the Afrikaans' word for crow, because of her distinctive high-pitched laugh. For ease of understanding, I'll refer to her as this as well. It's alleged that the young lover's relationship became violent very early on. Krai's sister would later say that she recalled Cry being put over her boyfriend's lap and smacked like a child. The environment in which they lived was no less violent. Cry's now fiancé would later admit that his own father had beaten him as a child and he had been sexually molested by his father's friend. There was ongoing domestic violence between his parents, which ended only when he and Cry went away for a weekend and received a call that there had been a shooting at his parents' house. The couple returned to the house to find his mother dead in a pool of blood, and his father barely hanging on to life. It's alleged that his mother shot his father before turning the gun on herself. His father survived. The young couple left his parental home after this incident, and lived with other relatives. They were soon married, and by February 1998, their first daughter, Yolandi, was born. Yolandi is the girl's real first name, but she refers to herself as Lundi in the book. The years that followed Lundi's birth were tumultuous and unsettled as the family moved across the country while Lundi's father tried to find work. They lived in Richards Bay, Zanine, and the Orange Free State always in a caravan on someone else's land, or in the home of relatives. Lundy recalls, though, that in between these cross-country trips, they would always return to the East Rand. When Lundy was five years old, her brother was born. We'll refer to him as H. Lundy describes her father as always having been an angry man, and her mother as being meek and distant. When H was born though, the dynamic shifted and the anger bubbling within her father started to erupt on a daily basis and without warning. Lundy admits that her father disciplined her physically when she was a child and the violence between her parents was a constant, but the real abuse started when H was about three. Lundy recalls that her brother could not be within the reach of her father without him slapping the child in the face for seemingly no reason. On one occasion, she recalled that they'd been driving in her father's bucky, and he'd become angry because he didn't have a fork to eat his hot chips with. To relieve his anger, he pulled over, beat the children in the back seat, and then threw H out on the side of the road. He started driving away, and H had to run to keep up and jump in the back. It was also at this point that Lundy noticed that her mother, who had always been emotionally distant from her, hardly spoke to her and never showed her any affection, was different with her brother. Cry would occasionally hug H or kiss him and make attempts to play with him, but she never stood between him and her husband. Lundy recalls realising that her mother must love her brother more than her. These displays of affection did not last long, though, and soon Cry was equally distant with both of her children. Lundy's birth had been registered, and she attended school for three years, when the family lived in Zanine. She failed her third grade year, though, and she never returned to school. Her father explained to her that she would no longer be going to school, because the world was too dangerous. He said that if she stayed home, she would be protected from the monsters. Landy recalls this seeming logical at the time, and although she missed playing with children her own age, she soon forgot about school. Landy's brother was born in a hospital, but his birth was never registered, and he was never enrolled in school. In 2009, Cry gave birth to a daughter and another girl followed less than a year later. Lundy was 12 years old when they moved into the double-story house in Springs. By this time, her father was working as a second-hand car salesman, and he sold scrap metal from their home. Lundy says that she has no idea how her father initially afforded the 16,000 rand per month rent that they had to pay for the house he soon started to supplement their income by renting outside rooms to tenants. He also started to sell drugs, and he and Cly regularly used the drugs CAT and crystal methamphetamine. Lundy's father had always looked after his appearance, and he soon began to inject steroids and exercise in a gym he had built for himself on the upper level of the house. Certain steroids are known to have a side effect of increased levels of aggression. And this only made the atmosphere in the home more terrifying. Lundy says that by this time, her and her brother had learned to constantly walk on eggshells. They were at their father's beck and call, and if they didn't react quickly enough, or do things the way he wanted them, they would be beaten without warning, or have the closest object thrown at them. Lundy's father had started insisting that his wife go everywhere with him. She went to work with him every day, leaving the children at home alone. It was at this time that Lundy, at 12 years old, became the full-time caregiver for her three siblings. She would later say that with every child that was born, her mother would hand over responsibility for care to her earlier and earlier by the time her youngest brother was born, after they moved into the house. Cry only looked after the boy for a week from his birth, before handing him over to Lundy. None of the births of the other children were registered, nor did any of them receive any schooling. Lundy explained that Cry had never made a statement about handing the children over to her. She simply withdrew her care from the infants, until Lundy realised it was time for her to take over. Lundy raised the three youngest children as her own. She fed, bathed and changed them. She toilet trained them and witnessed their first steps. The children acknowledged Lundy as their mother figure and would refer to their real mother as Tani Kurai. In order to stop outsiders from asking questions about why the children weren't attending school, They were ordered to stay inside during the day. Lundy, with assistance from H, cared for the children, cleaned the house, and cooked all of the meals for the family. She recalled that when it came around time for her parents to return home each night, she started to feel sick without fail. She knew that her father would find fault with something that she or her siblings had done during the day and then the beatings would start. She and H did their best to keep the younger children away from their father, but on more than one occasion, these toddlers fell foul of their father's temper. The youngest boy was two years old when he was picked up by his feet and swung against the snooker table like a baseball bat. The younger girls were dragged by their hair and feet up and down the stairs and kicked full force in the face without warning or provocation. Lundy's father soon upped the control he had over his family by installing 37 cameras in the home. The children were watched 24 hours a day, and the evening ritual was for Lundy's father to come home, demand that she remove his shoes as he sat in the lounge, and then he would watch the footage of the day's activities. If he felt that the older children had been sitting down for too long and not tending to their chores, he would beat them. If he felt they'd disappeared from the view of the cameras for too long, he assumed they'd left the house, and there was hell to pay. On weekends, he would review the week's footage again, just to make sure he hadn't missed a punishable offence. The children were prisoners in their own home they didn't go anywhere without their father. Visitors to the house were rare, but when family members visited, the children were assured of a reprieve. Suddenly their father became Dad of the Year. He was loving towards them and played with them. When the visitors left, it all went back to normal. Many of the visitors to the home, though, were a different kind of person. One of the rooms in the house was rented out by a friend of Kraj's, who was a prostitute. She didn't live there, but she used the bedroom to meet customers. It was Lundy's job to prepare the room for the woman and clean up when she was finished. Another friend of Kraj's was a stripper. When this woman came to the house, the children were told to stay in their rooms. One evening, though, Lundy was hungry as her parents had chase them upstairs before they could eat, and she'd crept downstairs to try and get a piece of bread from the kitchen. She saw her mother and her friend naked running around the lounge while Lundy's father watched. The sexual relationship between Lundy's parents was another point of abnormality in the house. Cry would later admit that her husband had raped her on many occasions during their marriage. He was obsessed with sex, and would not stand for being refused what he saw as his right as a man. The couple invited friends to the house to drink and do drugs, and these parties almost always degenerated into orgies. When Lundy was 14, she was no longer forced to stay upstairs when the adults were partying. She became their waitress, carrying drinks and cleaning up after everyone. One night she was exhausted from having looked after the children and cleaned the house the entire day, and then she was expected to serve at her parents' party that night. Her father found her sleeping on the stairs. Instead of the beating she expected to receive, he walked away and returned with a plate of the drug cat. She was forced to snort it to keep her awake, so that she could continue serving the party goers. From that night on, she was given drugs by her parents at least three nights a week so that she could continue with her chores. They also encouraged her to drink alcohol with their friends. What started with beatings in the home eventually escalated into torture. One night, her mother's cousin was at the house, a young man in his twenties. He was visiting with Lundy's father when one of the children did something to anger him. Landy's father asked the man what sort of punishments he thought they should give them, and the man went over to the computer and began to research torture methods. That night, Landy and her brother H. were waterboarded for the first time. Waterboarding is a method of torture that was used in the prisoner of war camps to interrogate prisoners. Landy and her brother were forced to lay face-up with their backs across the bath a face cloth was placed over their faces and water was poured onto their faces for minutes at a time water became a big part of landy's father's torture methods he would regularly hold the children's heads under water or force them to sit in ice-cold baths for hours in winter when he beat the children he would always make sure cry brought him a bucket of water so he could splash it in the face of his chosen victim at the end of the beating. Although Lundy was severely beaten and tortured, the worst violence was reserved for her brother. The boy was regularly tied up so that he couldn't move, and beaten. Then he would be left tied up overnight. His father attempted to drown the child in the swimming pool. On one occasion, Lundy's father had become paranoid that the police were aware of his drug activities and he instructed H to watch the CCTV monitor that covered the road outside the house for police cars. After hours of watching the screen, H made the mistake of switching to an ordinary television program. When his father saw that he was no longer following his instructions, he broke the television set over the boy's head the top part of his ear was sliced in two. The children were rarely given medical attention. In fact, it was only on occasions like this, when Lundy couldn't fix whatever new injury had been inflicted on her or her siblings, that any of the children saw a medical professional. On instruction from her husband, Cry bundled H into the car and took him to the hospital. She later returned saying that they were taking too long to see them and she didn't want to upset her husband by staying away too long. Landy stuck her brother's ear back together with a plaster and hoped it would grow closed. It didn't, and he was left with a gouge in his ear. You may have been as surprised as I was to hear that Cry could drive and was allowed to do so on her own. Her husband had taught her to drive, and she even had her own vehicle. But she wasn't ever allowed to do so without her husband's permission, and she knew that she dared not stay away too long, or she would pay the price when she got home. Lundy admits that her mother was as much a target of her father's rage as the children were. She too was tied up, and on one occasion she recalled her father chasing her mother around the house with a knife. When she eventually tired herself out and could run no more, her father stabbed her mother in the buttocks. He seemed surprised when blood started to spurt out of the wound, saying, I thought this knife was blunt. Her mother went for stitches that day. How she explained the injury was a mystery. Another incident occurred when her father beat her mother in the face with a snooker cue. A large splinter of wood pierced her cheek, and they were unable to remove it at home. Cry went to the hospital for that too. The abuse in the household escalated to a new level after Lundy's father began to experiment with waterboarding. Soon he was torturing his children in new ways. He came home one day with an electric cattle prod, the type used to move cattle along in an enclosure. The device releases a high-voltage, low-current electric shock, which is not enough to kill an animal or human in one shot, but causes severe pain. Her father started to use this on Lundy and her brother H. He then combined his fascination with water torture and his new device and forced the children to sit in a bath of ice-cold water and then shock them in the bath. Lundy's father also acquired a gas-powered gun, which shot small pellets. Again, not enough to kill, but enough to pierce the skin and cause significant pain. He came home with a blowtorch. He set it high enough to singe their hair and scold their skin. Occasionally, he would set it a little too high, and the children would end up with severe burns. Of course, they were never treated. Another torture method of his was to spray his children with pepper spray. Despite Lundy's father's many forms of income, none of this money ever reached his children. Cry and her husband got new clothes. Lundy got her mother's hand-me-downs, which, considering her father decided how her mother dressed, meant that Lundy was not wearing age-appropriate clothing for a teenager. The rest of the children shared clothing. Food was another scarce commodity. Lundy was expected to ensure that there was food in the house for all seven family members, but with three children in nappies and on formula, the 50 rand her father left on the table occasionally didn't go very far. The family mainly ate noodles or pasta, except when her father felt like splashing out and ordered takeaways. When he was angry with the children and his wife he would order takeaways only for himself. The children all suffered from serious dental issues due to their poor diet, and they all looked physically far younger than they were. Lundy admitted that when her father didn't leave money, she had to steal out of the wallets of tenants so that the children could eat. Even when he did leave money, Lundy wasn't allowed to leave the house, so she had to ask one of the tenants to go to the shop for her. There was always alcohol, drugs and cigarettes in the house for the adults though. When the children were ill, she had to somehow make the food money stretch for medicine too. Birthdays were barely acknowledged in the house, so when Lundy turned 16, she had no expectations. She was hugely surprised though, when her father announced that the family would all be going to Spur that night for dinner. He even presented Lundy with the first birthday present she'd ever received, a smart car. That's right, you heard correctly. He bought his 16-year-old daughter, a car knowing full well she couldn't drive it. He let her sit in it, and a few days later, it disappeared without explanation. Most likely, he'd never bought the car at all, but borrowed it from one of the second-hand car dealerships he worked at. A few weeks after Lundy turned 16, one of her little sisters cut her toe open and Cry had to take her for stitches. When her mother left, Lundy's father called her upstairs. She found him on his bed. He instructed her to remove her clothes and raped her for the first time. His torture had turned sexual. Her father would continue to attempt to rape her, and molest her on several occasions throughout the next few months. Lundy understandably describes her rape as being the worst part of her experiences in her childhood. She said that she would rather be beaten and tortured for days than endure the feeling of worthlessness and shame she felt after her father raped her. It would also emerge that Lundy's father would discuss his sex life with his daughter, and forced her to watch pornography with him. Lundy's brother H was starting to resist her father's attempts to beat him. He would run and hide in the backyard, knowing full well that he would have to come back inside sometime, and then his punishment would be worse. On the evening of the 19th of May 2014, Lundy's father said that he felt like takeaways and he started to look for his car keys. When he couldn't find them, he demanded to know from H what he had done with them. Lundy could see the telltale signs of fury building in her father, and so could H. He ran out the back door and into the dark backyard. In the interim, Lundy's father found his car keys and left to go get food. She ran into the backyard to find her brother before her father got back. As she entered the backyard, she saw her brother launch himself over the wall and enter the neighbor's yard. She managed to grab his leg and screamed for him to come back, but he kicked himself loose and disappeared over the wall. Terrified at what would happen if her father came back to find that H was gone, Lundy ran to her mother and told her, That H had gone over the wall. On the other side of the wall, the Fenter family were settling in for the night. Mr. and Mrs. Fenter were already in bed, and their 18 year old daughter Chandra was in the lounge, scrolling through Facebook on her phone. She was just about to call it a night herself when suddenly their two small dogs began barking hysterically and she heard a light tap at the glass door. Hearing the dogs barking, Mr. Fencer rushed into the room and held Chandra back before she could approach the door. He pushed the curtain aside slightly and peered outside. A small boy stood at his door. In the icy weather, he was clothed only in a pair of shorts. His naked torso was heavily scarred, and he stood shivering, with his hands clasped together, as though praying. Mr. Fenter slid the door open slightly, and the boy immediately whispered, Please, don't tell my father I'm here. Mr. Fenter ushered the boy inside, and his shocked daughter immediately found two jerseys and a blanket to cover him. His frame was so tiny, that the jersey slipped straight off his shoulders. Chandra sat beside the child, who she now realised was shivering from fear and not cold, and the family tried to understand what was happening. All the boy would say was that if his father found him, he would kill him. Mrs Fenter was up now too, and she and her husband started discussing in hushed tones what to do. The boy was clearly terrified. They'd only met the man next door once when they moved in, and he seemed nice enough. The Fenters had known at the time that the neighbor's wife had been pregnant when they moved in, but they had no idea that there were other children in the house. The Fenters considered calling the police, but they were concerned that they'd simply send the boy back home. They tried phoning Childline several times, but there was no answer. As they continued to weigh up their options, another knock came at the door. This time, a teenage girl stood wide-eyed with a skinny blonde woman behind her. "'Please can you send my brother out?' she asked. The desperation in her voice sounded completely out of place with her request. "'He must be back at home before my father gets back.' The girl and the woman stepped into the fenter's lounge "'and the blonde woman started to speak to the boy. "'She was trying to convince him that it was safe to come home "'and that no harm would come to him, "'when suddenly his father was in the room. "'He completely ignored the fainters "'and simply walked over to his son "'and slapped him through the face. "'He then grabbed him by the arm "'and marched the child out the door, "'muttering as he went that he was going to kill him. "'The fainters were in shock.' They'd never witnessed such brutality, and especially not from a parent to a young child. As the teenage girl and skinny blonde woman scrambled to follow the man and boy, the woman turned to the Fenters and muttered that she was sorry for the trouble, but her son was very naughty. And with that, they were gone, leaving the Fenters to wonder what next steps they should take. Back in Lundy's parents' home, Her brother H was tied to a snooker table and beaten so badly that his eyes were swollen shut. She had to feed her brother that night because he couldn't see. She described his eyes looking like two pieces of liver on his face. The next morning, Mrs. Fenter could not still her concerns for the safety of the skinny, scarred, terrified child that had sat in her lounge the previous night, She made the call that would bring the whole horrific House of Cards crashing down. One of the social workers described the scene inside the house as they entered that day, warrants in hand, and seventeen police officers in tow. She said that the house was in a horrendous state. It smelled of old cigarette smoke and mould. The children were filthy, and their clothes looked like something you would see on a vagrant who's been living on the street for years. She later admitted that at first she thought the three smaller children were Lundy's because they clung to her as though she were their mother. The social worker's description of the squalor in which the children were living belies the fact that Lundy was made to clean the house every day and that her father wanted things in their place. The social worker mentioned hypodermic needles laying around, and a snooker table piled high with revealing woman's clothing. High heels also lay scattered around, and the children had started drawing on some of them. The social worker also witnessed a rat, in her description, as large as a rabbit, run across the floor. One side of the TV cabinet was completely filled with a pornography collection. All of the bathrooms in the home were damaged, with basins having been smashed, no toilet seats, and kicked indoors. I think that the distinction here is what Lundy saw as normal and what actually was normal. I have no doubt that Lundy was cleaning the house every single day, but having lived in squalor and filth her whole life, most likely her idea of clean was relative. After demanding to know where the children's father was, He suddenly appeared in front of the police, all bravado, and wanting to know what they wanted. The social worker asked to see their oldest son, H. The father claimed he'd run away. In reality, Lundy would later discover that on hearing the police were at the door, Lundy's father had grabbed H and dunked him in the pool to wash off the blood. He'd then taken him to one of the tenants' rooms and instructed them to hide him in the ceiling. Initially, he'd wanted to hide there too, but he probably didn't trust his wife to not spill the beans without him there, so he left H in the ceiling and returned to the house. The property was searched, but H was not found. The remaining children were removed from the premises and taken to a place of safety. When asked why none of the children were in school, Cry claimed that she was homeschooling them, but she couldn't produce any documents to prove it. In reality, Lundy was the only one of the children who could read or write. Her brother, H, could not even write his own name. He was 11 years old. After the police left, Lundy's father arranged for H to be taken to family in the Free State. The family members were told that the boy was in trouble for fighting and he needed to stay with them for a while. The couple continued to deny that they knew the whereabouts of their son and even opened a missing person case for him. Police later admitted that they believed that the child was dead at this point. Lundy's father was arrested within a week, and Cry shortly afterwards. Separated from her husband, Cry buckled and told investigators where to find H. The boy was retrieved, and even though he had had a few days to heal, the injuries to his body still shocked social workers. Lundy's father was charged with the abuse and rape of Lundy, the attempted murder of H, obstruction of justice relating to the initial on-site search, five charges of child abuse, five charges of child neglect, two charges of breaking the Schools Act, showing pornographic material to his underage daughter, and using and distributing crystal methamphetamine. Her mother was charged with child abuse, child neglect, and defeating the ends of justice. As the news broke about the house of horrors that had been discovered in Springs, the public was enraged. At a bail hearing for Lundy's father, a group of bikers parked outside the courthouse, revving their engines. They told the media that for his own safety, they recommended the man stay in jail. He was far safer in there than he would be on the streets. He was denied bail. This decision was predominantly made because it emerged that he'd been sending threatening messages via visitors to people who could be witnesses in the case, including his wife. Cry had initially agreed to turn state's witness, but she flip-flopped on the deal after her husband allegedly threatened to kill her if she testified against him. Clye was given 2,000 Rand bail after her attorney presented compelling evidence that she too had been a victim of abuse. The five siblings were initially placed in the temporary custody of their aunt, their mother's sister. They stayed with her for several months in the run-up to the trial, until it emerged that the woman's husband had been molesting Lundy, as well as his own stepdaughter. All five children were removed from the aunt's home. The man who molested Lundy, essentially her step-uncle, was charged with sexual offences against a minor. He attempted to take his own life, but survived, and while in hospital, he escaped, and he's been on the run ever since. Lundy's aunt passed away shortly after the children were removed from her care, after a short stint of heart disease. Lundy's father after having been denied bail and seeing the mountain of evidence against him, also attempted to commit suicide while in jail, he did not succeed. He told a fellow inmate that he didn't understand why everyone was making such a big deal just because his kids didn't go to school. The minimising of his actions in that statement is just ridiculous, in my opinion. After having been removed from the care of their aunt, The children were split up. The three younger children were placed in several foster homes, but the pressure of dealing with three severely traumatised small children was too much for one set of foster parents, and in the interests of keeping at least the younger children together, they were sent to live in a children's home. H also moved through a few foster homes, before eventually ending up in a special education institution with living facilities. Lundy explains that she went through a very difficult period after having been removed from her parents. She was angry at her brother for having torn them away from their parents, and the difficulty in finding a good fit in a foster home compounded her feelings that they would have just been better off with their parents. She slowly started to realise, however, that her little brother was a hero. As she finally found herself with a foster family she clicked with, Lundy started to realise how absolutely abnormal the first 16 years of her life had been. At first she'd been angry when the media dubbed her father the Springs Monster, but soon she came to the realisation that he actually was a monster. Her mother's behaviour in the run-up to the trial also speaks volumes in Lundy's opinion. Of course, she'd never had a bond with her mother, but she was willing to consider the fact that she too was a victim. What really struck Landy, though, was how even with her husband behind bars, Klai still showed no interest in caring for her children. She also continued to support her husband throughout the trial, sitting in the dock holding his hand and whispering in his ear, even after she found out that he had raped Landy on several occasions. Both Lundy and her brother H. have stated that they have nothing but contempt for their mother. The children all wrote out statements and they were interviewed in camera during the trial with the help of a facilitator so that they didn't have to see their father. Disgustingly, Lundy's father instructed his attorney to claim that Lundy had seduced him and that he didn't think that she was his biological daughter and that's why he had sex with her. He also tried to turn things around on his son, bizarrely claiming that he'd asked to be tied up, and that the only time he hit his son was in self-defence when the boy had struck out at him first. H became so enraged at hearing his father's lies that he screamed at the facilitator to tell his father to stop lying. In her testimony, Cry also put the blame on H, saying that at times he had pushed his father to do these things to him. The children's father was found guilty of all charges against him. Their mother was found guilty of child neglect, but not child abuse, as it was determined that she had not physically harmed the children herself, and the judge felt that any participation she had was done under duress. In their victim impact statements, which were read out to the court at the pre-sentencing hearing, H said, quote, I hate him so much, I would kill him if I could. I wish that there are people in jail who could hurt him like he hurt me. I wish they could also burn him with a blowtorch and hit him and shock him, so that he'll know how he hurt me. I sometimes see the scars he gave me, and I hate him. He never loved me. I wish I could get another surname because I want nothing to do with him. I don't want to be his son. End quote. Of his mother, he said, quote, She never even cried when he hurt me. She never tried to stop him. I don't love her. She did nothing to help me. I now know that I did the right thing that night because I helped my sisters and brother. Sometimes I think if I hadn't done it, he would have killed me. End quote. Of her father, Lundy said, quote, We were very afraid of our dad, and when he came home, I always tried to keep the smaller children away from him. I thought if he didn't see them, he wouldn't think of them, and then he wouldn't hurt them. He hit us with PVC pipes and a cane. I remember how he dragged my sister down a flight of stairs and how her head hit every step. He would hit H in particular and hung him by his arms or legs from the rafters. There was so much that happened, I can't even remember all of it. Of her mother, she said, My mother was always there. And did nothing to help. Both children expressed the view that both of their parents deserved to serve jail time for their crimes. Forensic psychologist Bronwyn Stollars testified to her psychological evaluation of Lundy's father in the pre sentencing hearing. She said that the offender lacked insight into the extent and consequences of his crimes, more so. Than any offender she had ever interviewed in her career. She considered the man to be a psychopath and that he posed a significant threat to society. She also said that if he were not incarcerated his freedom would render any psychological progress his children made null and void. In other psychological testimony the man was also classed as a sadist which is a term used to describe people who enjoy seeing the pain and humiliation of others. Cry was found to be suffering from battered woman syndrome. She also showed traits of a person suffering from Stockholm syndrome. Battered woman syndrome is a psychological disorder, which is a form of PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder. It develops in a woman after years of sustained severe domestic abuse and results in feelings of helplessness, which cause the woman to believe that she deserves the abuse, and that it is not possible to get away from it. Battered woman syndrome has been accepted as a defense in several homicide cases. Stockholm syndrome was first identified in 1973, when hostages taken by bank robbers in Sweden began to identify with and sympathize with their captors. Since then, it's been identified in several cases where women in particular are held captive or have their movements restricted by a partner. It was determined that Cry had not been able to intervene in her children's abuse, predominantly due to these syndromes, and the very real prospect that she herself would be beaten if she attempted to intervene. The children's father was sentenced to 35 years in prison, Their mother was given a suspended sentence of five years, as the judge felt that she failed to provide primary care for her children, which was within her means, despite her disorders. Lundy's father said that he would be appealing his conviction and sentence, but no further news has been made public about this. The couple divorced during the trial. Lundy's father spoke to a journalist after his conviction he had the following to say, which I've translated from Afrikaans. Quote, I just want two minutes to tell my children that I'm sorry. I love them, and I'll never give up on them. I hurt them, and I don't know why I did it. I was stupid and idiotic, and I can't understand why I did it. End quote. A fellow inmate told reporters that when he'd asked Lundy's father why he kept his children as prisoners in their home and not let them go to school. He said that he'd believed the world was an ugly place and that he was under the impression that his wife was homeschooling the children. He claims his wife was the controlling one. This statement is just ridiculous because when did he think his wife was homeschooling the children if she was with him the entire day? and he would have been well aware that his wife did not have the intellectual capacity to homeschool her children. He has become involved in a new relationship while in prison. The woman was visiting another offender when she met the man. Krai has married again, this time to her ex-husband's cousin. Yes, you heard that right. And in early 2019, she gave birth to a daughter with her new husband. As at the publishing of Lundy's book, Knair made no effort to get in touch with her older children. In all fairness, both Lundy and H. did state they never wished to see their mother again. The younger children have never really had a relationship with their mother. The oldest of the three stated that she believes that her parents were made by the devil. She also doesn't want to be adopted or fostered, because she's too afraid she may end up in the same situation again. Lundy is now 21 years old, and through hard work and perseverance, managed to get her matric and driver's license. She's extremely insightful in the views she expresses in her book, saying that, although she can't forget that time in her life, she knows that she can't allow it to define the rest of her life. She says that when she looks back now, she can't believe that she ever thought that family situation was normal. She says that people often ask her why she didn't run away. Lundy says that running away never crossed her mind, because she had no idea it was an option. Because she was so isolated, she didn't know that the world outside of her home was actually a better option. Because her father, after all, had drummed into his children's head that the world was filled with monsters. Landy says that she would see other families on television and did notice that things seemed different, but she thought that that was just something for television, and that real life was what she was living. She said the following about her hopes for the future, saying that she'd like to have quote, children of my own, but also adopted children. I really want to encourage people to adopt. There are so many kids in orphanages. Because of my experience with my new parents, I want to give that to someone one day. End quote. About her new foster parents, she says quote, I could not have asked for more. My new parents are amazing. I love them so much. They are the parents I always should have had. End quote. H is finding it more difficult to deal with his emotions, as boys generally do. He still feels angry and says that the scars on his body are a daily reminder of his childhood. He's slowly catching up on the education he missed out on, but he says he feels like he'll never be normal. I really hope that this young man gets the support he needs. He has a lot of stuff to work through, and he deserves to live a healthy life. Besides trying to understand how a parent can actually bring themselves to inflict such horrific injuries on their own children. The biggest question in this case has always been, how did this remain hidden for so long? Of course, we want to know this, so we can figure out how not to ever let it happen again. I think that a big part of how Lundy's father kept his abuse hidden was the coercive control he held over his family. The children were kept out of school and isolated from the outside world, He filmed them 24 hours a day. They lived in terror, and the biggest part of his control is that he made them believe it was normal. If you had a hood placed over your head from the day that you were born, and every single day you were told that everyone else lives with hoods over their heads too, there's a very good chance that you would never take that hood off, because in your mind, that's the way things are. Often children who are being abused or molested will run away. But those children have access to the outside world. They at least have a few friends and some resources. Lundy had never even been to a supermarket. So as far as the children are concerned, I can completely understand why they never said or did anything to get out of the situation. Cry is a bit more difficult to understand. The very nature of a mother is that we expect them to be protective, and by all accounts, not only did she not try to stop her husband during the acts, she never told anyone else it was happening either. In my opinion, she's a very typical example of a person who's been stripped of any independence she ever had. She was a child when she met her husband. She also came from a background where she didn't have a very good maternal figure herself and she also unfortunately has a low IQ. If you look at the progression of control that has husband extended over her, he was clearly trying to very slowly strip her of anything that connected her to anyone else except him. i wonder if he got her hooked on drugs as another form of control. She suffered physical abuse as well, And that terror, paired with the coercive control from her husband, could be seen as sufficient to have stopped her from getting help. Her emotional detachment from her children is not uncommon. Not all women are born to be mothers, and paired with her emotional immaturity, the abuse, and her own background, it's not that strange that she never formed a bond with her children. What is strange is that she completely neglected them. Again, this could have been something that her husband encouraged in order to not have her sharing her attention with the children and keep her focused on him. She kept having babies though, even though she clearly didn't want them. So maybe we can understand her actions before the family was exposed and maybe we can even try and use that to explain some of her actions during the trial. But in my opinion... Her actions after the sentencing speak volumes. Not only has she made very little effort to have contact with her children, at least the younger ones who hadn't yet vocalised they didn't want to see her, she married her ex-husband's cousin. Now, I'm not for a minute saying that the man is in any way like her ex-husband just because he's from the same family, but I do think it's a slap in the face to her children and then she went and had another child. This woman who is clearly in no emotional space to be a mother to an infant. I'm not a psychologist, nor have I ever been in a situation like this, but the extent of Kra's culpability just doesn't sit well with me. Although this family was isolated, there were points of contact with the outside world. There were tenants, but it would later emerge that Many of those people were buying drugs from Lundy's father, so it's likely that they weren't in their right minds to begin with, and he also had a form of control over them. There were people who came to the house for parties. Granted, they were using drugs and having orgies, but they were witnessing, at the very least, a 14-year-old girl drinking alcohol and taking drugs with her parents. And then there were the visitors, who took part in the torture, like the young man who suggested the waterboarding. Lundy also testified that her father's friends would, at his request, dress up in masks from the film Scream and terrorise the children. I think Lundy's father was very careful about the types of people he interacted with. He seemed to select only people with a very loose moral fibre to align to his inner circle. People who he knew probably wouldn't care much about what was happening to five children as long as they got their drugs, alcohol and sex. People who quite possibly were treating their own children in the same way. Were the children let down by the system? Honestly, I don't know the answer to that question. Lundy's disappearance from the school system should have sent up flags but her father was moving her around so much that I'm not surprised no one realised she hadn't been put into another school. I do think that there's a gap between the hospital and home affairs. All of the children were born in hospitals and issued proof of birth documents. But in South Africa, it's the parents' responsibility to ensure they report to the Department of Home Affairs within 30 days of the birth to register the child and receive their official birth certificate. In my opinion, that's a big gap. For most parents, it's not an issue because they have no problem with their child being registered, but for families like Lundy's, where the existence of a child is being purposefully obscured, it's a huge loophole. Before we start jumping down the government's throat, though, let's keep in mind that there were 990 1,000 birth registrations in South Africa in 2017. That's almost 1 million babies to follow up on. Honestly, it's almost impossible. The children were often denied medical care, but there were occasions that some of the children and cry were so severely injured that they had to be taken for treatment. It's easy enough, though to go to different hospitals so that not everything is on record in one place. So really, the only hope that these kids had was for someone to see something and have the courage to say something. Child welfare and the police acted immediately and in force when they received Mrs. Fenter's call, but it took the courage of an 11-year-old boy to spark that. What would have happened if H hadn't scaled the Fenters' wall that day? Well, it's possible that the police may have eventually raided the house for drugs, if it was indeed on their radar. But if that hadn't happened, I honestly believe Lundy's father's brutality would have escalated to the point that someone died, and it likely would have been H. Lundy would have continued to be raped, and her little sisters would have experienced the same trauma when they grew up. The horrifying possibilities are endless, really. So how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? Sadly, we probably can't stop it from ever happening again, because it's most likely happening to another family somewhere else right now. Somewhere in this country, there are other children who are enduring the same brutality they might even live next door to you. I'm not suggesting we go on a witch hunt and report every family that does things differently than we do, but children who seem exceedingly scared of their parents, who continuously have unexplained injuries on their bodies, who do not appear to be engaged in normal activities for a child of their age, need to set our alarm bells off. The most likely place we're going to see this is in our own extended families. This is one of the most horrific cases of child abuse I've ever heard about, and I know that it was difficult to listen to, but I really think it's important that we know about these things. As much as we would like to close our eyes to reality, we need to understand the depths that human depravity can reach, so maybe we can avoid there being a house of horrors in your town. Thank you for listening to episode 14, The Spring's House of Horrors. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on the app you're using to listen, and remember to follow us on our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a mini-sode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.